Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, uh, not much housekeeping here today. I've spent much less time on social media of late. So much less time, in fact, that I, I really I can't actually judge whether what I've seen there this week just reflects an especially contentious week or whether I have changed in my sense of what is the expected ambient level of hostility and lunacy on Twitter. It has seemed completely crazy every time I've checked back in over there. Honestly, I, I just reread the Unabomber's Manifesto for the first time since it was originally published, as you might recall, under threat of further maiming and murder. And it is a slightly crazy document. You can certainly hear Kaczynski grinding his teeth in the background, more or less throughout. But the truth is, it is better reasoned and modulated than half of what I see on Twitter. And this is from people with blue check marks by their names and large followings. So I, I don't know what it means to be able to honestly say that half the people on Twitter seem less hinged than a man who was sending bombs in the mail. But it does seem that we're performing an experiment on ourselves, the consequences of which are as yet undetermined. Anyway, I'm very happy to have withdrawn to the degree that I have. It feels far more sane. One of the things that happened this week is Coleman Hughes, who's been a guest on this podcast, the preternaturally mature undergraduate, still undergraduate, from Columbia University studying philosophy. Coleman testified in Congress on the topic of whether it would make sense to pay reparations for slavery. And he argued against paying reparations. I'm not actually sure I agree with him, though he was perfectly rational in his remarks. And I'll be going on his podcast in a few weeks, I think, and we'll probably talk about this. I'm actually quite open-minded on whether or not reparations make sense. Some of you might recall that Hitch argued in a formal debate in favor of reparations. It's a genuinely difficult question, so at a minimum, I can say I'm quite open to arguments from both sides here. Anyway, to watch Coleman's testimony and to have heard the hissing and booing in the gallery, to see the faces of some of the people sitting behind him reacting to his arguments, and then to see the aftermath to the degree that I did on social media, where at least one person with a blue check mark, an HBO writer, called him a coon without apparent repercussions from among her fans. We have to find some way to correct course here. Which brings me to today's podcast. Today I'm very happy to have finally connected with Jared Diamond in person. Jared is a professor of geography at UCLA. He's the author, quite famously, of the books Guns, Germs, and Steel and Collapse. And his newest book is Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. He has won many awards, including a MacArthur Grant and a Pulitzer Prize 
He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and an all-around fascinating man. In this conversation, we focus on the themes that Jared has focused on in the books I just mentioned, which really are about the rise and fall of civilization. We discuss political polarization in our own time. Uh, We talk about disparities in civilizational progress, why it is that Europeans, for the most part, seem to have dominated the globe. We talk about the precariousness of democracy in the U.S. at the moment, the fact that we lack a strong political center. We talk about immigration policy. And as always, if you find conversations of this sort valuable, you can support the podcast by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. I left the bonus questions in this episode, but I have bonus questions from many other podcasts that will soon be rolled out as subscriber-only content there. Anyway, without further delay, I bring you Jared Diamond. I am here with Jared Diamond. Jared, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming. Uh, I've been, you know, as many of my listeners will be, I've been an admirer of your work for many years. Uh, this is not your first book, but the first book I, I read of yours was Guns, Germs, and Steel. And I, I want to talk about really three of your books that seem to form a kind of unified picture of how civilizations arise and thrive and fail. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm thinking of Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, and the new one, Upheaval. And I, I will focus on the new one because it has special relevance to the moment both from a publishing point of view and just from a, you know, what is happening in, in our own country point of view. But um, thank you for doing this, and it's a great pleasure to do this with you in person. Gladly. No, I'm happy to, to discuss these subjects with you, which I guess interest you just as they interest me. So you, like uh, many people who I admire, you have taken an unconventional route into focusing on what you focus on. You, you were a physiologist at first, for quite some time, and now are functioning more in the mode of, of a historian, although I, you have a, a formal appointment in the geography department at UCLA. How do you think of your, the way in which you have respected or failed to respect the traditional boundaries between disciplines and what you've focused on? It's not something that I think I'm consciously about. It's just that I'm interested in lots of things and, and Already as a child, I was interested in lots of things. In, in high school, I expected that I was going to become a physician like my father. And so I figured that I would be doing science for the rest of my life. Therefore, in high school, in high school I would use the time to do things other than science. So in, in high school, I took Latin and Greek, and I had wonderful history courses. In college, again being pre-med, expecting to do it for the rest of my life. I took the minimum number of required science courses. Mm. I've never taken a biology course other than introductory biology. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I majored in biochemical sciences, but I never took a course in biochemistry. And instead I took courses in all sorts of possible things. I took courses in astronomy, intensive Russian music composition for professional musicians, oral epic poetry. Mm. So I was interested in all these things. I, th- I then decided not to go to medical school at the last minute. Instead, got my, went and took a PhD, did graduate study in 
physiology became one of the world's three experts on the gallbladder. Uh-huh. And I was hired <laughs> by UCLA Medical School as a promising gallbladder expert. That sounds like a backhanded compliment it's, uh, in some way. <laughs> um, the gallbladder is, is uh, not an organ that we think a lot about. And- That's right. The, the gallbladder does not play a lead in world thinking. <laughs> no. it, the reason I studied it is that the gallbladder is a model. It, it works. It uses the same mechanisms that the kidney and intestine use, and, but it's easier to study. So, right. so I got a lot of mileage out of the gallbladder. I, I taught kidney physiology and intestinal physiology and liver physiology to medical students until 2002. But then two things triggered my, my shift out of, out of gallbladders. One was the birth of our twin sons in 1987. Mm. And at that point, I realized that their future was not going to depend upon gallbladders, <laughs> right. not, but their future was going to depend yeah. upon the state of the world. Not even their own gallbladders. Not even yeah. their own, because you can do without a gallbladder. Yeah. And the other thing was, totally unexpectedly in 1985, being awarded one of these MacArthur Foundation fellowships, mm-hmm. which you would think would thrill me. So I got a phone call, totally unexpected, because you don't know you get nominated, totally unexpected, saying, this is Ken Hope from the MacArthur Foundation. You've been awarded a fellowship and we'll give you uh, no strings for five years and we'll give you any questions. And I was stunned. And then I went into a depression for a week. It's the the only, really the only lasting depression of my adult life. And Hmm. the reason was that the award in effect told me, Jared, we expect things of you. And I was saying to myself, but you've been wasting your time on gallbladders. What are you going to do about it? Mm. So it was those two things, the MacArthur Award and the birth of my sons that, that induced me to, to switch in 1987. Gradually, my interest in, I, I enjoyed doing physiology, but my interest in it decreased. And as time went on, I wanted to, to switch from physiology to geography. But university appointments are not a portable appointment where you can go around and find some department that will take you. Instead, my appointment was as a gallbladder physiologist. Right. It took a lot of negotiations to get me transferred from the physiology department to the geography department where I've been since 2002. What did you get the MacArthur Award for? Someone must have recognized that your, your work held wider promise than focus on the gallbladder. How did that happen? I had already, at the time I got the MacArthur Award, I had a parallel career in ecology and evolution, because mm-hmm. I had been a bird watcher from age right. seven onwards. And so immediately after I got my PhD, in the year or two after I got my PhD, at the time I didn't know what the significance of it all was, but I immediately began looking for another field, a parallel field. And I, I seriously considered a career in conducting, music conducting. Mm-hmm. I seriously considered getting into pre-Columbian pottery, but those didn't take. And instead, I went to New Guinea. It was love at first sight. And I've been studying New Guinea birds ever since. So I th- for the MacArthur Award, my work on New Guinea birds, I'm sure it was that and not my gallbladder work that, right. that contributed right. to the MacArthur Award. Right. Well, you are a true polymath. Yeah, really, I, I got to think that at a certain point, we will age out of being polymaths because there was a time with, with knowledge mm-hmm. doubling every three to five years, it becomes harder and harder to even pretend to know much about so many things. But you, you, it seems to me that you really have managed it, as your books attest. What's the significance of your 
scientific background in how you approach writing history? That's, that's interesting. It's not something that I thought of consciously, but the fact is that, that my approach to history is always comparative history. I've never, most historians do single case studies. So a historian mm. will write a book about 19th century Germany or 17th century France. I've never done that. It's that all of my historical studies, they're comparative. I compare different countries or different societies. That's something that I learned right at the beginning of my gallbladder career when I went to, to Cambridge, England to do my graduate study. My mentor was a great physiologist who was studying iron transport in muscles. And the way he did it, he was looking at the effect of potassium on sodium efflux in muscles. He did it beautifully elegant. He had two test tubes and he had two pieces of the same muscle in two different tubes. One tube had potassium and the other tube had no, no potassium. Mm -hmm. So he compared pieces of the same muscle. Then when I went to New Guinea and began studying New Guinea birds, in, in order to study the effect of species number one on species number two, in New Guinea, it's not considered nice or permissible or legal to go around exterminating species number one on one mountain in order to see what that does to species two. I had to find different mountains where one mountain, for whatever reason, lacked species one naturally. And then right. I compared it with another mountain that had species number. So my approach has always been a comparative approach. And then when I, when I got to, to history, I realized that with history, the comparative approach forces you to pose those questions that you would never think of otherwise. An example that I think of is that I love reading books about the American Civil War, like so many people. Mm -hmm. And all these fat books on the American Civil War, they'll devote six pages to second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. But at the end of an 800-page book, they haven't discussed one of the most salient things of the American Civil War, which is that at the end of the war, the victors did not kill the losers. Instead, at the end of the American Civil War, only one person was executed, and that was the commandant of Andersonville prisoner of war camp. Whereas at the end of the Spanish Civil War, the victors killed a million of the losers. And at the end of the Finnish Civil War, the victors began to kill the losers at a rate higher than any modern genocide rate until Rwanda. If you compare civil wars, you're then struck by this thing that's crying out for explanation with the American Civil War. But if you don't do comparisons, the question doesn't arise. Mm. So with comparative studies, naturally, I, with a 500-page book, I can't devote the whole book to 19th century Germany. I have to divide the book among seven countries. But questions arise, and you can answer questions through comparison. So that's my approach to history. Mm. Yeah, and it's really, it's thrilling to read. I, so I, again, I want to talk about three of your books, but I guess I, I want to frame the conversation with what seems to be the charged political moment, especially mm -hmm. in, as we notice it in our own country, the U.S. and in, in Western Europe. And I don't know how much time you spend on social media. I, th I think probably none. Yeah, that's, that's... I don't know. I don't know how to turn them off. This is, uh, this, <laughs> if there's no other variable that accounts for your basic sanity, <laughs> it, it's really that. But it does seem like, and this is a concern you raise throughout your latest book, Upheaval, which is where what we're witnessing is a, a persistent and growing failure of political compromise and our ability to resolve our differences 
civilly to converge on answers to uh, global problems that break us out of partisan gridlock. And um, this is something that increasingly worries us, and I think we're right to be worried. And we're going to talk about it as we get into upheaval, but I'm just wondering just how you view the current moment and how much of that was informing your writing of your latest book. The current moment, meaning right now or this year or since 2016, no effect because I began the People often ask me, Jared, did you start your book within November 2016? It took, it took longer than that, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I began the book in 2013. I right. didn't foresee 2016. It happened that the book was doubly at the right moment, not only because 2016 exacerbated the breakdown of political compromise in the U.S., but also Brexit. Brexit began after I started the book. And I'm just back from, from what, 10 days in the U.K. Mm. I, mean, I was shocked being in the U.K. I've lived in the U.K. for five years. And, and I had thought that the United States had the most imminent problem, but no. Brexit is going to Brexit threatens big problems for Britain before what's happening in the U.S. will cause big problems in the U.S. Brexit risks the falling apart of the U.K. secession of of Scotland and even secession of Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's also just such a there's a breakdown of civility that is shocking to me, and it's so cavalier. I mean, so I, I perhaps you've noticed this if you. It's hard to know what one notices if one isn't on Twitter these days, but I don't know how widely reported this has been, but there's been this seeming epidemic of people throwing milkshakes at politicians they don't like in the UK, especially. And I look at this through, through two lenses. One, one is just the kind of the personal, my personal understanding of, you know, as a semi-public figure, what it means, and a controversial one, what my security concerns are and what it means to have someone come up to you in public and hit you with a milkshake, you know, even though you, in, in the, this case, you have bodyguards around. What that is actually, whether the perpetrators know it or not, is a mock assassination, right? It's like it, what it is, is demonstrating that I can get this close to you, no matter, you know, whether you're Bill Gates or whoever you are, you've spent millions of dollars a year on your personal security. And yet right now I can throw whatever I want in your face, right? And it advertises that to the entire world which includes people who may in fact want to assassinate people. So there's that kind of narrow security concern, which many people are unaware of. And when I, when I voice this on social media, you know, many people found it risible, like, oh, well, it's just a milkshake. What are you, this is not a mock assassination. But uh, the security implications are graver than, than people realize, because what it does is just advertises persistent vulnerability, no matter how much you spend on security. But more important than that, it's a breakdown of civility such that there are very few stops past a milkshake between where we are now and actual political violence. If you can no longer resolve your differences with a political figure whose views you detest through conversation or debate or criticism, and you have mainstream journalists advocating for the public humiliation of people by, you know, throwing milkshake such that they no longer feel secure in their, in their persons, it's it's alarming. I mean, they're very again. There are very few places to stop where we can arrest our slide into actual political violence. I was wondering how you view civility itself and an ability to 
let words suffice as a break on our baser natures collectively? Well, it's it's not only politicians. I don't know whether you noticed as you came in here that the entrance to my house now has a metal wall around it with spikes at the top. Mm. And Marie and I put those up about a decade ago at a time when some angry anthropologist launched, <laughs> launched a series of four lawsuits against sorry, me. Sorry to laugh, but the, given my run-ins with anthropologists, the, the angry anthropologist is a fixture in my imagination that I, I can easily summon. <laughs> Most most anthropologists are normal, decent human beings. Right. Yeah, let's leave it at that. Yeah. But there are a, a small number of very angry anthropologists, more so in anthropology than in other fields. And consequences for me are the putting up of spikes mm -hmm. on my fence and getting bodyguards. There were two broad-shouldered gentlemen in black suits who accompanied me to a lecture that I gave at an unnamed nearby university because an angry anthropologist called up my host and began by saying, do you believe in academic freedom? And then the angry anthropologist proceeded to, to say that he intended to uh, attempt to disrupt my lecture. So mm. we had the two gentlemen in, in broad, with broad black shoulders. It's something that I'm constantly aware. I've not been, been physically attacked, but I certainly have been on the receiving end of of a lot of vile verbiage. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's get into that a little bit. So, I, I, let's let's start with guns, germs, and steel. What was the thesis of that book, and what was controversial about it? The question. So, the question of the book. Before we get to the thesis, hmm. the question of the book is: Why has history turned out differently for people of different continents? Why is it that you and I are sitting here speaking English in land of Native Americans where the language 500 years ago was Chumash. Why did it turn out that way? Why is it not the case that Chumash is the language spoken in, in London? Or why is it that, say, Bantu languages are not spoken in Australia? Why did history turn out that way? Why did history turn out with Eurasian people expanding, and particularly within Eurasia, European people? So that's the question. Right. Well, and, well, and, the, and the subtext of that, obviously, is that we're not just interested in who speaks which language. We're talking about why did certain civilizations thrive so fully that they could conquer and dominate others, and you have massive disparities in wealth, in technological sophistication, and all the rest. Exactly. The, the, way, the way that my friends in New Guinea put it, they talk about cargo. Cargo is the New Guinea term for for all of the good stuff, for metal, technology, writing, schools, mm. medicine. And the way New Guineans put it to me is, why did you white people develop all the cargo while we black people had none? New Guineans posed the question explicitly. And mm. the, the question was posed to me by a New Guinean in 1972. It was a great question. I babbled out something, but as soon as I said it, I knew that my answer was wrong. Why is it that these really smart people in New Guinea, why is it that we Europeans, I who can't find my way around New Guinea forest without being guided, and, and I need a child to lead me by the hand so I won't fall off a cliff, why is it that New Guineans didn't, didn't conquer the world? 
the thesis of guns, germs, and steel. When you ask people, when I ask professors of biochemistry in the United States this question, why did Europeans conquer the world? A typical answer that I'll get is, well, uh, 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 you know, I hate to say it, this isn't politically correct, but higher IQ and more brains than Judeo-Christian work ethic. But mm. all you have to do is work in New Guinea one day, and you see that it's not that Europeans have better brains than New Guineans. There was some other explanation. So guns, germs, and steel, in fact, interpreted, and, and the explanation is now widely accepted by people concerned with these things. Guns, germs, and steel interpreted the different rates of development of people on different continents in terms of the wild plant and animal species suitable for domestication, because everybody was hunter-gatherers everywhere in the world until 11,000 years ago. With the beginnings of agriculture, you got population explosion, food surpluses, surpluses that could feed inventors, kings, scribes, but only a tiny fraction of wild plant and animal species are suitable for domestication. And you can satisfy yourself by just by taking a walk this weekend in the Santa Monica Mountains and seeing what there is out there that's suitable for domestication, like nothing, trying to domesticate a, a skunk or a deer. Mm. So the people living in the areas with wild plant and animal species, the Fertile Crescent, China, Mexico, were the ones who got the head start on developing the cargo. Yeah, so that I remember from that book, there's an arresting image of just how implausible it would be to try to saddle a rhino and ride mm -hmm. it into battle. And uh, apparently a zebra is, is, not, is not much easier to domesticate. I was on the Animal Management Committee of the Los Angeles Zoo, and I was astonished to learn there that the zoo animal that each year kills or cripples more, more keepers, zookeepers in the United States than any other is not tigers, but it's zebras. Because wow. zebras have the nasty habit, well, two things. They have the nasty habit of biting, and they don't let go until you're dead. And the other thing is- Seriously? Oh, wow. Seriously. I've never heard that. They have a really vicious kick. Uh. The kick is useful to them because when they're being chased by a lion, and the lion is ready for the next last yeah. lunge, the zebra kicks out and smashes the, the jaw of the lion. So zebras have not been domesticated. There are people that then point out to me that, that there, are, there are Lord Rothschild got some zebras that pulled his, pulled his cart in London. Yes, you can occasionally get zebras to pull carts, but they've never been domesticated, whereas horses and donkeys have been domesticated. So you paint a picture of really sheer, unearned, geographic disparities in luck. Completely unearned geographic disparities. Where that upsets angry anthropologists is twofold. First of all, to discuss why Europeans expanded over the world means that you are Eurocentric and racist. Mm -hmm. It's not nice to pose the question. But the fact is, everybody can see that Europeans, rather than Aboriginal Australians or Africans, conquer the world, and it cries out for explanation. The fact that, that historians and archaeologists hadn't provided an answer to the question, that forces people to fall back on the obvious racial explanation. You can see that people have have different faces, and maybe that means that they have different brains. So to pose the question means that you are bad because you're racist and Eurocentric. Right. And then also to answer the question in terms of geography means geographic determinism, which is another dirty word. Geographic determinism seems to imply that the human spirit counts for nothing. Hmm. Well, the human spirit counts for something within limits, 
But if you would like to stand at the North Pole in January in a t-shirt and shorts and look to the human spirit to yeah. allow you to stand, you're going to need a lot of lots it. of luck for the human <laughs> spirit. All this geography has big effects, and in some cases, the the big effects are dominant, like standing mm. the North Pole in a t-shirt. But also in developing agriculture, if you don't have domesticable species around there, you're not going to develop agriculture, and without agriculture, you don't develop metal tools, and you don't develop writing and don't develop kings. So what has been the most um, persuasive argument against this thesis? Has there been anything? None whatsoever. <laughs> there, is, there, there is no- Oh, to be able to say that, that's great. No, no the, the fact is there is no serious, there's no counter explanation. Hmm. Occasionally, I recall one archeologist who said, there are cultural reasons why Aboriginal Australians never developed agriculture. Well, for heaven's sakes, there are, what, 184 different tribes in Aboriginal Australia, and they're different from each other. But Australia has no domesticable plant and, or animal species other than macadamia nuts, but you can't found a civilization based on, on macadamia nuts. So there is no alternative explanation. Right. Yeah, I, I'm totally persuaded of your thesis. I guess it also seems plausible to me that there are other contributing factors which arguably are of the sort raised that are even less politically correct than yours, which is any groups of people who are isolated enough so as to express biological and cultural variation are going to differ in some factors that are relevant to their differential success as groups, right? So whether it's biology and or culture, it's almost certainly both to some degree. There will be differences in the mean level of expression of certain skills, which could lead to differential success given given the environments that select for it, right? So I mean, the, it seems to me to be an unsustainable and a fundamentally unnecessary political commitment to say that we know in advance that there are no differences between groups that are biologically mediated. I mean, we know there are cultural differences that are irrelevant. I mean, it's just, that is as obvious as the nose on anyone's face. But the idea that there could be biological differences that have implications for the success of whole groups of people, it does seem to me that we can't rule that out. And there's no reason to rule that out once we know that our political commitment is such that we want all of these unearned differences in luck to be canceled insofar as that increasingly becomes possible. And we want everyone to be able to thrive in whatever way they want to thrive, such that it's compatible with the thriving of other people. That has to be the punchline for how we build a viable global civilization. But the idea that, I mean, this is just to express the fear as clearly as possible. It seems, and this is, I'm sure, anthropologists by the thousands would line up in defense of this notion, that the idea that if we tested Fijians for the top 100 traits we care about in, in human beings, quantitative intelligence being one, but we could add you know, sense of humor and everything else we love about people, whatever those 100 traits are, and we tested Norwegians on those same traits, people feel like we are approaching some ethical or political emergency if we don't conclude in advance that all of those mean values must be the same. Or if 
if there's any difference between them, genetics can't have anything to do with it, right? Even though we know that so much about ourselves is largely governed by what we are physically, that is genetically. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that topic. All, all of what you say about expectations, it's all, it's all true. People different differ in eye color around the world. People differ in hair color, red, yellow, brown, black, etc. So why shouldn't they also differ in quantitative ability or in, in predisposition to, to, to verbalize in certain ways? Why, should, why shouldn't they differ in, in predisposition to tonal versus, versus non-tonal mm. languages? Theoretically, that's a possibility. The problem is that despite a lot of effort by a lot of people to establish differences in, say, cognitive skills, differences have, at a population level have not been established. Instead, there are obvious massive cultural effects on cognitive skills. But my experience in New Guinea, it doesn't take much time with New Guineans, with traditional New Guineans, to realize that these are smart people. And yes, there are differences among New Guineans, but on the average, my experience with New Guineans right from the first year has been that they are, they are more curious and they're more inventive, more, more prone to look for possibilities to use something. They just strike me as, as more alert than Europeans. Right now, well, the re the reasons well, for this. Well, I, then, I, then maybe there's an invidious comparison to draw between New Guineans and Europeans for certain types of inventiveness. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm just saying that, like we we don't. What I'm increasingly worried about, I and mean, this is uh, you're you're talking to someone who's still dealing with the aftermath of having had Charles Murray on the podcast mm -hmm. and dealt with the whole legacy of his publicity problems, really, in the end. And it just seems to me that we can close the loop on the political and ethical concern without knowing what we're going to find over the next century of studying human biology, human genetics, its contribution to everything we care about. We know that we're living in a circumstance where each of us personally and all of us collectively have inherited the world as we find it. You know, you didn't pick your ancestors and you, therefore you didn't pick your genes, you didn't pick the society into which you were born, and whatever tools you have to make the most of this situation, you didn't earn any of them, right? You can't account for yourself. And yet what we notice the world over, you know, both within our society, I mean, you know, how many homeless people did I pass on the way to your house to conduct this interview? I know that but for a few changes in my neurophysiology or just in my history as a person, you know, opportunities I didn't get or didn't take advantage of, I would be one of those people who's, you know, now sleeping on the sidewalk tonight. So we know that we want to mitigate those disparities. And we know that being good people and building good societies is predicated on our commitment to mitigating those disparities. And yet I find myself surrounded by people. And again, they seem disproportionately to be anthropologists or, or social scientists who feel that even to broach the topic that I just broached to you is a sign of some covert interest in, you know, white supremacy or some insane political doctrine that, you know, has gotten people, you know, by the millions killed. I mean, these are the kinds of political experiences we're about to talk about. 
I just think we're, we we have to pull back from this brink where we feel like we can't. Again, I wasn't even expecting to bring this up to you, but given your your academic bona fides, it seems worth doing. This is where the precariousness of our situation intellectually was kind of first forced upon me. I remember in 2014 when it was found that Homo sapien DNA had been commingled with Neanderthal DNA to the tune of you know 2.7 percent or 3 percent. Basically, everyone on Earth, with the exception of people who have just all of their ancestors in Africa, is part Neanderthal, right? And so I remember going out on social media that day and quite sanctimoniously saying, attention all racists, you were right. Whites are special. We're part Neanderthal. Blacks are just human, right? You know, it took me about five seconds after sending that tweet to understand what if it had gone the other way? What if the only people on earth who were part Neanderthal were people of African, direct African descent? That would have been a life deranging, probably life destroying discovery for the geneticist who had the misfortune to make it, or for any journalist who had the temerity to even talk about it, right? It just would have been so awful for reasons that we have to perform an exorcism on. We can't politically be vulnerable to just the data coming in. The data will be whatever they are, right? And who cares who's part Neanderthal in the end? But I feel that we as a a community of public intellectuals, for lack of a better word, are truly vulnerable to what is a kind of moral panic around the politics of discussing human difference. If the studies were available, the the answers are likely to be unpalatable to, to people who least expect the outcome of the studies. A personal example that I encountered was that, that a friend introduced me to a prospective donor to support my research. And the, the prospective donor was a wealthy industrialist. And then the friend made the, the horrible mistake of, of talking about my New Guinea work and then saying in front, in front of the prospective donor, Jared, didn't you say that, that New Guineans strike you as more intelligent than Europeans, and at which point the donor, the prospective donor flipped out right. and said, what has any New Guinean ever done for, for world civilization? Well, you know, if you, if you don't have metal tools, your, your capacity to possibilities of doing stuff for world civilization are limited. The fact is that, that those who invented agriculture longest ago, 11,000 years ago, the major causes of death in, in Eurasian societies for the last many millennia have been epidemic infectious diseases, mm. which means that the strongest natural selection is for overcoming resisting smallpox and measles. And that depends upon ABO blood groups and da, 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 da. It's a major cause of death. Whereas in New Guinea, the major, major causes of death are starvation, fighting with other New Guineans, figuring out how to survive a frost or a famine, there's strong selection for intelligence rather than epidemic diseases because the population wasn't large enough for, for epidemic diseases. Therefore, it's, it would not be surprising if the studies that you're thinking of end up showing that New Guineans have not only more social skills developed culturally, but that they, have, they were genetically selected for a superior cognitive ability. Mm. But there are a lot of people who won't won't like that conclusion. Right. And I would also imagine that there's a 
been a fair amount of selection pressure for intergroup violence, you know, outgroup violence. Yeah, in in basically any society that doesn't have a central government, what central gov central governments can declare war and kill a hundred thousand people in in ten seconds, yes. But what central governments can also do is is end wars. Whereas yeah. in societies without centralized government, you can't end wars. You can you can reach a temporary peace or an agreement to halt the hostilities, but then a batch of hotheads from your group will go attack another group. You can't restrain the hotheads. So the fact is, and again, anthropologists don't like to recognize the fact, but there's massive evidence that the that the percent of people who die violent deaths per year in traditional tribal societies without centralized government is considerably higher than in state societies. Yeah, well, that's a, that a happy point that that our mutual friend Steve Pinker has made to the consternation of many. That I mean, that that you know, civilization, as horrible as as recent or even distant wars were, again, even adding World War One and World War Two to the ledger, what we see is a precipitous decline in the the risk that you are going to die at the hands of another person as civilization has progressed. Right, and and Steve Steve has drawn on studies by anthropologists and archaeologists who've surveyed dozens and maybe hundreds of societies around the world, traditional societies. And yet you can come up with a couple of traditional societies with low rates of violence, but the great majority have rates of violence, rates of violent deaths, percentages per year of violent deaths in excess of those, in excess of the worst of the worst, in excess of Poland in the 20th century. Yeah. So, okay, we're we're on our way to your recent book, but uh, let's touch on collapse. What was the thesis of that book? Thesis of collapse is that in the in the past, societies have often collapsed, and there are lots of collapses. Many of them are romantic mysteries that that I was interested in already as a teenager, and so many people. The classic Maya civilization, most advanced civilization in the New World before before Columbus, that built the wonderful ruined cities of Tikal and Palenque. Classic Maya civilization in the lowlands collapsed in the 800s and 900s. Why? Angkor, the Khmer Empire. And, and we're talking about, was it something like 50 million people that might have been living in Mayan? There's debates about the numbers. Uh -huh. Maybe it was a few million, maybe it was 5 million, maybe uh -huh. it was 10 million, but it was lots of people. Right. Khmer Empire collapsed in the 1300s and 1400s. Easter Island, Easter Island society, although there are, there are some anthropologists who don't like the conclusion, Easter Island society clearly had collapsed at the time that Rogovine arrived there, first European, in 1722. There are so many cases of past societies that collapsed with environmental factors playing a big role in the collapses. So my book, mm. book Collapse, was about the collapses of past societies. There are reasons other than environmental reasons, but environmental reasons played a big role in the past. Today, a reason for a difference between societies in the past and today is that in the past, without globalization, societies could collapse one by one. When the Maya, classic Maya, were declining, nobody in Europe knew about it, and they probably didn't even know about it in the Valley of Mexico. Today, when a society is spiraling downwards, other societies around the world get involved. And so today, what we face is the risk of a global collapse. We no longer face the risk of, of one by one Easter Island-like collapse. So the thesis of 
collapse was about the the collapse of society, but also the survival of societies due especially to environmental reasons. Right. Well, so your your recent book is Upheaval, and uh, you talk about these specific cases which you compare. And I guess let's focus on, you talk about Finland and Japan and Chile and the U.S. I guess let's focus on Chile because it's sort of the most alarming politically and the analogy you draw between it and our current case is is arresting. And frankly, it's it's arresting that it's not more arresting because like, so you you make the point that, you know, you lived in Chile before the Pinochet coup and you had many friends in Chile who never would have dreamed, in fact, did not dream that their society was vulnerable to this kind of descent into political violence and really just sadism of a sort that, you know, really represents the most extreme unraveling of of a society. So had you told them that this was going to happen in a few short years, they wouldn't have believed you. They would have thought you were a scaremongering conspiracy theorist. It was not obvious just what path their society would take to unravel so fully. And yet it did. And yet I find that making an analogy of that sort to our present case doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't really raise the blood pressure for more than a second or two. It's just, it's still, even granting the validity of the analogy, I mean, we'll we'll talk about how Chile and, and the United States are different, or you know, the Chile of the early '70s was different than the U.S. now. But just, what do you think about the the, the psychological failure to be to, to be persuaded by an analogy that seems? And there, there are many analogies like this. I mean, like so I, before I read your book, I, I remember reading some op eds written in Jewish newspapers in Germany in the you know the '30s, right? And these were the most sanguine dismissals of a more global concern about where the, all of this could be headed. You know, like Hitler can never do what he says he's going to do because, you know, foreign powers won't let it happen or something that just kept the Jews of the time seemingly uh, safely at home. How do you view that just this enterprise of trying to persuade by referencing the insouciance and cluelessness of some previous generation in some other place and drawing the obvious conclusions? In the United States now, it looks normal around us. In Chile, when I was living there in 1967, it looked normal. My Chilean friends said, we are a democracy. We're not like those other Latin American countries. We know how to govern ourselves. Not only that, but in in 1973, after the coup of September 11th, my Chilean friends related to me. Soon after the coup, one of my friends was at a dinner party with about 18 people, and they were discussing, so what's going to happen now that there's a coup? the widespread view was that the coup was a necessary stage to the return of democracy to Chile because there had been increasing chaos, but economic chaos and security chaos during the years 70 to 73 leading up to the, to the coup. And so the expectation of Chileans, of centrist and even right-wing Chileans in 1973, was that the military government, how long would they stay in office? Three months? Two years max. One person out of those 18 said they might stay in power. Nobody guessed that they would stay in power for for 17 years. It it was unthinkable. In the United States, things seem normal now. It's unthinkable. Might the United States go the way of Chile? No, of course we're not going to go the way of Chile. 
the Chilean military had in Chilean history intervened twice briefly. The mm. Chilean military in the 1930s briefly intervened to put down a proto-fascist movement. And there had been an intervention in the, the late 1800s. And Chile is in the middle of Latin America where there are, there are military schools. The, in contrast, the American military has never intervened in politics, not once. So if democracy ends in the United States, it's not going to be a military coup. Instead, if democracy ends in the United States, it's going to end by the things that have been going on for the last 20 years and that are getting more and increasing more and more. Democracy will, will end, is in the process of, of declining by gerrymandering and by state election officials who are also candidates for office. For example, the recent successful candidate for governor of Georgia was, I believe, the, also the chief electoral official of Georgia. Gerrymandering state, state and local electoral officials, for example, in Alabama, who closed down department motor vehicle offices in counties of Alabama with African-American majorities to make sure that African-Americans can't get a driver's license, which will allow them to vote. And when there's a lawsuit insisting that the state of Alabama has to open DMV offices, mm -hmm. yeah, it opens them in African-American counties one day, one day a month, and it's on a weekday. That's the way that democracy is in the process of ending in the, in the United States now, not by military coup. Also, we just see hyperpartisanship eroding the, the usual checks and balances at the level of the federal government, and also just the impossibility of getting things done. I mean, we have just the legislative process grinds to a halt, the appointments of judges or not becomes so partisan that it's a kind of a winner-take-all phenomenon in politics that seems corrosive. And also there's just, you studiously avoid hooking your book to the news cycle. So you only mention Trump once in the book in, in the prologue, and, and you, I'll mention him here. But there's this interesting component of your analogy to Chile, which is that, and I was surprised to learn this, that Pinochet struck everyone as a totally reasonable guy, a moderate guy, a guy who is not likely to do anything extreme. The reason why this analogy is, is striking is that we're not in that situation at all with respect to Trump. I mean, no one would imagine that he's a moderate guy or someone who's incapable of doing something extreme. I mean, this is he's a visibly disordered personality. And we are just, those of us who are concerned about having promoted someone like this to the highest office in the land, console ourselves with the notion that the institutions are such, the system is such, that no matter how disordered he might become, he will not be obeyed at those critical moments where his disorder could, could redound to the disadvantage of all humanity. But in the case of Chile, even there, we, we, the warning signs were not at all clear with respect to the, the, the person of Pinochet. In the case of Pinochet, two very knowledgeable groups of people misjudged him. One was the CIA, who, mm. our CIA, whose business it is to try to understand people. And the CIA prepared a report on Pinochet, which, which concluded that he's a harmless old man, oldish man, devoted to his family with a strong interest in in religion and his, and his children and his wife, who would never become a political leader. And then the other people who were deceived were his fellow generals, because Pinochet, it's not that Pinochet led the coup. There was a coup of four 
the leaders of the Chilean armed forces. And the Chilean, the army chief of staff, was forced out somewhat before the, the planned coup. So who's the next army chief of staff? Well, Pinochet is in charge of the, the army in the Santiago area, and he's old. So he was the logical person to be the army leader. The plan at the time of the coup was that the leadership of the junta would rotate among the heads of the different Chilean armed forces. And when it came time for Pinochet to rotate out, he didn't rotate out, but he in fact had developed a secret service that terrified his own fellow, fellow generals and, and admirals. So it's not just the CIA, but also, and it's not just Chilean intellectuals and Chilean left-wingers, it's Chilean centrists and Chilean writers and Chilean military leaders who misjudged mm. Pinochet here in the United States. So Trump, many people recognize negative qualities about, about Trump. Mitch McConnell, I would be perhaps more concerned about Mitch McConnell than I would about Trump because Trump is so clearly aberrant. Mitch McConnell is more mm. mainstream, bad mainstream. But again, let us not just bash one side. In, in my book, not only did I avoid Trump after page 20 or so, where I said, this is the last mention of Trump in my book, I minimized talking about Republicans yeah. and Democrats because there are there, the two cases before the Supreme Court now about gerrymanders. One is a Democratic gerrymander and the other is a Republican gerrymander. It's not the case that the, that the two are equal in their frequency of gerrymanders, but the fact is that that even within the Democratic Party, there is extremism just as there is within the Republican Party. Yeah, well, I, frankly, I spend a lot of time worrying about and criticizing the extremism on the left. In fact, it, it seems more hostile to free speech now, at least, than extremism on the right. And it's the extreme views on the left are more mainstream than the extreme views on the right are. I mean, you have imbeciles carrying tiki torches in Charlottesville on the right, that's the extreme right wing. The extreme left, in certain regards, has captured journalism and academia, and at least with respect to certain issues around free speech. What does one do with the inconvenient detail that there really was a legitimate concern about the left, I mean, to take the Chilean case, the Marxism or quasi-Marxism of Allende was reasonable people could certainly have expected it would have been politically and economically disastrous. And it was reasonable at the time for people in the center or on the right, and it was certainly reasonable for the U.S. to worry about Soviet-style communism spreading to yet another country in our hemisphere. I mean, we had just gone through the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is well understood now, although it probably wasn't so well understood at the time to have been probably the most dangerous moment in, in human history. So you have an ide ideology on the left that is creating certain economic and political derangements. And there seem to be moments in human history where the corrective to that is of necessity blunt and you know even violent. And you see perfectly reasonable, ethical people being patient with what then very quickly proves unthinkable. You just mentioned your friends or people you knew who were um, not especially alarmed about just the kind of brute force 
machinations required to just get rid of this Allende leftism and put Chile back onto a, a viable economic path. And presumably the people in the United States who are backing Pinochet, at least in the beginning, were not sadistic monsters. These were people who, you know, at least in a pragmatic way, had decided it's just unacceptable to have a, a Marxist nation in our hemisphere. And you, you see the same possibility emerging in Western Europe now with respect to what seem to be quite reasonable concerns about immigration, now just deranging the politics of one country after another, and there's this kind of swing into populist right-wingery. How do you view that? Because it's not, it's, it's not as simple a story as to say, well, Pinochet was a monster and Allende was represented the good side of that political equation. Allende was a, was a mixed bag. He, he was widely regarded as a very successful minister of public health. When he came to power, he, his announced goal was to, to bring Marxist government to Chile by democratic means. He invited Fidel Castro to come to Chile. He brought considerable numbers of Cubans to, to Chile. To Chileans and to Americans, this was terrifying and had to be stopped by any means because the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis, it became clear soon after the Cuban Missile Crisis that there were some very close calls. There were several of them involving submarines and planes where nuclear weapons nearly were resorted to. So it was the, it was the policy of the American government to make sure that there would never again be a communist government installed in the Western Hemisphere. It was the policy of Chileans in the country to which Allende brought Fidel Castro that there would not be a Marxist government installed in Chile. And both centrist and right-wing Chileans were determined that Allende could not be permitted to do what he wanted to do. Also, Allende, he was torn between more radical and violent leftists and more compromising leftists like, right. like himself. And again, this is hard to recover in the current climate because there's just been a strange nostalgia creeping in to leftist conversation around things like socialism and even Marxism. The quality of life in the Soviet Union under Soviet-style communism was abysmal, right? And the, the liabilities of broadcasting their, their military strength to the rest of the world was obvious. To have been opposed to Soviet communism was not to have been merely xenophobic or deranged by American nationalism or hubris or exceptionalism or the vestiges of colonialism or empire. Or I mean, it, was, it was one could anathematize the politics of the Soviet Union purely on the basis of, of a rational consideration of just how you want to live and how you think other human beings should want to live. And yet that seems to be somewhat difficult to recover now. I would say the same thing with respect to Islamism or you know, Islamic fundamentalism. I mean, the, the critique of that cultural orientation and, and, the, and the political imperatives it foists upon us, it can be made without even a trace of xenophobia much less racism. I mean, one can be squarely in an ethical, liberal, pragmatic, political foundation 
and realize that you know the prospect of living under Sharia law or having a society that builds gulags for its political opponents, these are awful distortions of the well-being and cooperation that's available to us. The problem, however, though, is that well, I feel like what we're seeing is that whether it's a pendulum swing phenomenon or whether it's a the only people who are energized enough to really draw the line at certain moments seem to be extremists of another sort. Again, the like the immigration concerns of Western Europe at the moment. This conversation is largely being co-opted by extremists on the right, you know, nativists, populists, anti-Semites, actual, you know, aspiring fascists. And that strikes me as disastrous. The inability to find a moderate, sane, well-intentioned middle ground from which to strongly resist, you know, whatever derangement is coming from one or the other political pole just invites the opposite political pole to fill that niche. I'm just back, what, last week? I think last Monday from the UK with its arguments about Brexit. Initially, I had planned for my book, Upheaval, a chapter on Britain, because Britain's the country where I've, outside the United States, mm-hmm. where I've lived the longest. And as of 2013, when I was planning my book, Upheaval, the story about Britain was Britain's having remade itself with considerable success after World War II. I was living in Britain, 58 to 62. That was, in retrospect, the, the time of peak change in Britain when, when Britain was shedding its empire, when the Suez affair of 1956 laid bare Britain's inability to operate on a world stage independently, the scrapping of Britain's last battleships, incredible for the country that had the world's strongest fleet for so many centuries, yeah. scrapping its last battleships. And then, then in the, in the um, 1970s, Britain recognizing that its trade most, was mostly now with Europe rather than with the Commonwealth, so Britain applied to join the European Union. So as of 2013, I envisioned a chapter on Britain in my book, Upheaval, about Britain's successful selective change. But then with the Brexit referendum of 2016 and with the Brexit parliamentary vote, of 2017, I don't have a chapter on Britain because there's now a new crisis mm-hmm. and right. the new crisis is moving so rapidly that it's, it's difficult to cover in a newspaper published on Friday that people are going to read on Monday. It's certainly not suitable for, for discussing in a book. What struck me on my recent visit to Britain is that, that there's not a single conspicuous British politician with a sane policy regards Brexit. The, the conservatives, the conservative party is overwhelmingly pro-Brexit. There are some conservatives who are anti-Brexit and, and a number of them have split off of the conservative party. The Labour Party, which is apparently predominantly anti-Brexit, nevertheless the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, will not take a clear stance about whether he wants a second referendum. So mm-hmm. Britain seems tied up with a, today with a leadership crisis, with not one leader 
not one significant leader planning a proposing a, a sane policy for Britain. And it, it's it's sad that the country that led the world in modern democracy is making such a mess of itself. Yeah, and it's not only Britain. It seems to be much of Western Europe and arguably the same forces are at work here. I mean, we we don't have, I mean, our immigration concerns by comparison seem rather farcical. What has happened in Europe of late, especially with the, you know, the aftermath of the Syrian civil war, you know, those seem like legitimate pressing concerns around assimilation and the, the, the just the, the, the sheer numbers of people showing up, refugees and economic migrants. And the political variable that seems most critical there is that anyone, whether they're in the center or they're liberal in every respect, but for this next utterance, or they're on the right, anyone who raises a concern around immigration gets castigated as a racist or a xenophobe for doing so. It's like there's no, there's no ethical basis, or so it's imagined on the, on the left, to have a concern about who comes into the country, whether they assimilate, and in what numbers, whether they assimilate, whether the culture of your society can be maintained in their presence, you know, concerns about respect for free speech or gender equality or gay rights or anything of that sort. To even frame those concerns is to be a bigot. And what that's selecting for are people further to the right who don't care about aspersions of bigotry. And in fact, many of them are actual bigots, right? I mean, this, this is what seems so destabilizing about the, the way the left plays these conversations politically. David Frum recently made this point. If, if you are going to call every person who voices a concern about immigration or about having a defensible border a fascist, eventually only fascists will show yeah. up to do the job. Yeah, yeah. In Britain, it's, it's paradoxical that the, the parts of Britain with the highest percentage of, quotes, immigrants, people of non-old non, non British background, London and southern and eastern England, England, that's the, England, that's that part of Britain with the highest percentage of immigrants was most strongly anti-Brexit. And the strongest support for Brexit came, came from rural areas of northern um, yeah. Britain where, where they have met one immigrant the, yeah. the, the, from the Poland. Few, fewest immigrants, yeah. but in the in the United States states as well. So Marie and I spend spend vacation each, each year in Montana, and mm. we we're in we we're in an area in Montana. On one of our visits, our sons brought each year they they bring friends, school friends with them, mm. and one year they brought one of their African American friends, and that African American was the only African. <laughs> American yeah. in, in the five hundred miles in a, in a town of five thousand right. at, at the time, but it's it's rural parts of the United States that are that are that are least affected by immigration, nevertheless most upset about it. Well, that, this is just the consequences of cosmopolitanism and globalization. I mean, what we have it, 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 this urban-rural split is is a story of people gathering together in cities and disproportionately becoming integrated in a global economy that where you know the the winners of globalization are to be found whereas if we're either automating and or outsourcing manufacturing jobs to china 
and the the benefits of doing that are being disproportionately enjoyed in cities by people who um, love the fact that there are 20 different kinds of restaurants within a mile of their homes. It's easy to see how in rural America or in you know you know rural England, immigration is largely a, and globalization are largely a, a dark story, even when the evidence of it is not showing. I mean, basically, the, the evidence is just a matter of, in this case, of jobs and economic prospects leaking away and, and a lack of social mobility. Among the countries that I, I, I discussed, one, one of the most, well, they're, they're all interesting in different ways, but Australia. So Australia and Britain, they're the only two countries to which I seriously considered emigrating. Mm. Australia, I first visited Australia in 1964. When I first visited Australia, it struck me, Australia is more British than Britain. Australia was like Britain had been 20 years before I lived in Britain in 1958. Australia still legally had a white Australia policy. So that was 1964. Right. And gradually, in the, 19, in the 1960s and 1970s, Australians woke up to the fact that their trade with Britain was crashing and their trade with Asia was increasing. And it, was not, it, it would not do to, to say to the Japanese who were becoming Australia's first trade partners, we would love to trade with you, but you can't, can't come settle in our country. And during the 60s and 70s, then Australia gradually developed a change, an overturning of its immigration policy to the point where initially it was a white Australian policy. Hmm. And Australians reluctantly, after World War II, accepted Italians and Greeks. There was a, quote, wonderful, incredible statement. Australia's Minister for, for Immigration after World War II said, with careful selection, Italians can make good citizens. <laughs> okay, so, so Australians began to accept Italians and Greeks. But then in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Australia has been accepting a massive immigration from, from Asians to the point where when I brought my son Joshua to Australia for his semester abroad in 2008, and I, Joshua and I walked across the University of Queensland campus in, in Brisbane, I felt I was at UCAL Berkeley. This was it's an Asian majority campus in yeah, 2008. Yeah. Or UCLA is, is also. Or UCLA yeah. now. And, and a friend of mine who teaches at University of Sydney Medical School says that the majority of medical students in Sydney are from East Asia and from, from South Asia. So Australia has changed its self-image massively from being loyal British subjects to being a, a real mixed community with its own identity, with its, with its identity based, based, based in Asia. For the purposes, purposes of my book, Australia was interesting because of my six case studies, four were of explosive crises, mm. two were invasions or threatened invasions, the invasion of Finland by the Soviet Union, the threatened attack on Meiji Japan by the West, by the United States and Britain, and two were internal explosions, the Chilean coup d'etat of 1973 and the, the Indonesian explosion of genocide of 1965. But two were slowly unfolding crises. Australia after World War II and Germany after World War II, with Germany gradually coming to grips with its Nazi, um, Nazi history. So they're, they're crises, but they're slow-moving crises. But they, they involved the same checklist of factors as did 
the explosive crises, namely in Australia. Issues in Australia were change in national identity and honest self-appraisal and recognizing that Britain was no longer able to protect Australia and changing selectively. So Australians are still big on sports and Australia is still, a, in some respects, a hyper-democratic country, but it's changed its its identity from boy being loyal subjects of the Queen to being their, their own country. Well, just to look at this through the lens of immigration for a second more, it seems to me that there's it's hard to find the sweet spot because if you found it, tell me what it is. But I, like at one point in the book, you talk about how, you know, based on American exceptionalism, we are we apparently are reluctant to learn from how other developed societies are are navigating these particular shoals, you know, whether it's with respect to healthcare or or immigration or anything else. But you know, for instance, Canada handles their immigration policy quite differently than we do, and you know, Australia has handled it differently in the past. And yet, however you handle it, it seems to me that you're open to the charge of, you know, rank self-interest and failure of compassion with respect to the needs of the world's politically dispossessed at a minimum, to speak of refugees in particular. So Canada, as you point out, filters far more carefully who comes in to the country than we do. And yet, I would imagine any move in that direction on our part would be met on the left with cries of, you know, this is xenophobia. Just take immigration as the, this kind of case study. What do you think our immigration policy should be, given the world's needs and given our own pragmatic self-interest? It's meaningless for me to say what our immigration policy should be, because one of the messages of immigration around the world is that that an immigration policy has to be one that is acceptable to the citizens of the country. It is no good telling the citizens of any country, this is what you should do. Particularly rational immigration policy is in Finland. So Finland, a country with its, with its own language that nobody else speaks and with a very strong national identity because most families in Finland had people killed during the war against the Soviet Union. So Finns have a strong national identity. There are Somalis who immigrate to Finland. It's hard to imagine people culturally more different from Finns than Somalis, but the Finns, Finns have adopted the policy. We're going to take Somalis, but we want to take Somalis in numbers that, where we can provide them with a strong entry into Finnish society. How many Somalis can we accept in Finland, providing them with education and housing and language training and job training that will enable them to make the transition into Finnish society. It's expensive. So the Finns calculated, we can afford to provide those opportunities for about 1,500 Somalis per year. One might say, well, for heaven's sakes, 1,500. That's ridiculous. You, you, you Finns are being, being heartless. The reality, given the population of Finland, 1,500 Somalis is a proportion of the population of Finland is as if the United States were accepting 85,000 Somalis per year. So the Finns are really making a big effort, but they, they are asking, how many can we take in and offer good opportunities to, instead of taking in 10 times that number and offering lousy opportunities and no, no opportunities to much larger number? It seems to me that that's an example of a 
of, of a rational immigration policy. Other differences, you mentioned the contrast between Canada and the United States. There's a dilemma. Should immigration be on the basis of reuniting families? That's a major consideration for the United States and also for, for British immigration policy. In contrast, in both Australia and Canada, immigration policy is based on a point system asking what do prospective immigrants bring to offer to our country. And a consequence is that, that Canadians accept immigrants and the approval rate among Canadians for Canada's immigration policies is 85%. Probably the disapproval rate in the United States for American immigration policy is 85%. So it's essential, right. whatever, whatever immigration policy there's going to be, it's got to be one that's going to be acceptable to the country. Yeah, although clearly we can stand outside a country and judge their biases and feel right to do so. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, like in, in reading about Japan, I mean, I knew this about Japan before I read your book, but in reading about Japan, I mean, they have a immigration policy, which, which, you know, limits it to a, a single lucky person, you know, a decade or something ridiculous. And they seem quite satisfied around the politics and the ethics of that. I believe I'm not mistaken. I think it is a white supremacist I mean, literally like neo-Nazi KKK talking point in the U.S. to point to Japan and say, what's wrong with Japan? Why can't we be like Japan, right? And that does put, uh, you know, Japanophiles in an uncomfortable position of what is the, the non-racist, non-supremacist defense of Japan's attitude toward immigration? First of all, with due respect to Japan, you tarnish Japan by saying that they accepted one immigrant in a decade. It's not as bad as that. In fact, for, for asylum speakers in Japan, a couple of years ago, Japan accepted in one year one asylum speaker, and the previous year they expected, accepted two asylum oh, okay. speakers. Well, so you're being I'm uncom- an order of magnitude <laughs> off. <laughs> you're an order, <laughs> order of magnitude off. Japan, Japan is a distinctive country. It's a country that I know moderately well because to Marie, I I have mm-hmm. Japanese relatives, and we have Japanese cousins and, and Japanese, Japanese nieces. Japan is ethnically the most homogeneous country in the first world. Mm-hmm. Japanese have very strong social customs, and you're expected to, to follow those customs in, in living in Japan because the population density of Japan in the, the settled area of Japan is higher than in any other first world country. People are just so crammed next to each other that that they have, to, they have to share views in living together in these close numbers. Now, the Japanese, Japanese suffer from their lack of immigration, and they know it. The ways in which they suffer are that there's not the pool of immigrants to serve as childcare providers, with the result that women in Japan who want to remain in the workforce, but they have children, they can't, they, they can't get childcare because they're not the immigrants. That's one thing that they lose. A second thing that they lose is old age. In the United States, the people who provide care at home for senior citizens are disproportionately immigrants. But that's not available in Japan or in Japanese hospitals. In American hospitals, much of the staff, the, the staff and the nurses are from the Philippines and other countries. In Japan, because there's not all this all this, this immigrant staff. Yeah. We were through a horrible experience where one of our Japanese relatives died and 
It took her three months in the hospital to die, but we saw what it's like to be in the hospital in Japan because there's not the pool of immigrants. Meals are not served. It's the obligation of a family to provide right. the meals. And your bed linen is not changed. It's the obligation of the family. Well, the Japanese know perfectly well what's going on in their hospitals, and they know what's going on with childcare, and they know what's going on with elder care. But, but they've decided that they would rather be homogeneous than accept those immigrants. They do, do accept contract laborers to do things such as to work for the Olympics and to work in shipbuilding. They accept the contract laborers for, for a few years. But they're, they're willing to pay this price because they value homogeneity more. Yes. Why don't we stand in judgment on that attitude? I mean, if we tried to import that attitude, we would be right-wing lunatics. How do we translate from culture to culture with respect to the, I think, unavoidable moral charge of that kind of difference? Those who wish to make moral charges against the Japanese, let them do it and see <laughs> how far that gets towards changing Japanese behavior. One can make moral charges against the Japanese. There are different moral charges that can be made against us Americans. Yeah, yeah. Well, now I realize, Jared, that time is preciously short, and I could, I could speak with you for uh, many more hours. It should go without saying that our conversation has not at all exhausted or even fully covered what's of interest in your book. Are you open to some rapid-fire questions now before in the last... 10 minutes. These could be. Yes, before my Japanese yeah, yeah. visitors come. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they are Japanese visitors. All right. All right. Well, I won't uh, accuse them of, of uh, rank racism on my way out. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, then you can construe your field however you, you like. What would it be? My one piece of advice would be get tenure before you start writing for the general public. Because mm -hmm. if you start writing for the general public before you have tenure, you will be told that you're all washed up, you're prostituting yourself, and, and you're, doing, you're writing for the public because your research career is finished. And therefore, the advice that I do give to, to people in academia who want to publish books is get tenure first, and then you write your book. Interesting. What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? You can, you can pick the, the important decade. Gosh. Okay. So my first marriage ended in divorce and was very unhappy happy divorce. I wish that had been, been different. Otherwise, most of the things that I've, I've done, I'm happy with. Yeah, I had my children. My kids were born when I was nearly 50. 50 mm -hmm. was a great age for my kids to be born. I had my career in laboratory physiology. I keep my career in New Guinea birds. I have a very happy marriage. I have a great relationship with my children. I'm in, in good health. Considering the alternatives, things turned out okay. Nice. What book should everyone read? What book should everyone read? Read, what, read whatever book you enjoy reading. The books that I personally, what books have I enjoyed? Is there any book that you reread with any regularity? Yes, I, I regularly read. Yeah, there are three books that I regularly reread. I reread re The Complete Sherlock Holmes uh -huh. about every 10 years. Nice. I reread Thucydides, The Peloponnesian mm -hmm. War, about every 15 years. I reread Thoreau's Walden about every 30 or 40 years. <laughs> I ration it out because I find it so upsetting that I have to ration it out. Those are, those are oh, and I, I, I reread and I read every week Albert Schweitzer's biography of Johann Sebastian Bach huh. because I love Bach and I gain so much out of Schweitzer. Nice. 
what negative experience, one you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Oh, my, my, my nearly drowning in a boat accident off of, off of Indonesia and about 30, 40 years ago. I stepped into that boat. I should not have stepped into that boat. I nearly died as a result. We were fished out 15 minutes before mm. sunset. If we hadn't been fished out then, I, I wouldn't be here. And I learned, learned from that, take responsibility. It's not enough to scream the, those stupid people in the boat. It was my fault for getting into the boat. And ever since then, I've adopted an attitude of constructive paranoia. I mm -hmm. think of everything that could go wrong, and it drives some people, like most of my friends, crazy. But nevertheless, I will not step into How should you have known not to get into that boat? Oh, the next day, I came across an American who had seen that boat and not got into it. And so he had been spared my horrible experience. He just looked like a bad boat that was liable to sink? Or? He said he, he looked at the young men. He looked at the cocky young men at the rudder. Mm. And he, he sized up correctly that they were going to be dangerous, that they were going to be incautious. And yes, mm -hmm. they were incautious. It was not an accident. It was, it was something that happened as a result of their going too fast in high seas. Mm. How, so how long were you in the water for? Oh, we were in the water for a couple of hours. Mm. What most worries you about our collective future? You raise, you raise many topics in the book, the prospect of nuclear war, climate change, that we, ha we haven't talked about. What, what's, if you had to pick one thing that most concerns you, what, what, what should you be lying awake at night worrying about? You are going to get a Jared Diamond answer, which people hate. The one thing that most concerns me is people looking for the one thing that most concerns <laughs> them, because the fact is we have to deal with the nuclear risk, yeah, we've got we to have deal to deal with climate change, right. and we have to deal with unsustainable resource use. And we have to deal with inequality. And if we solve any three of those and don't solve the fourth, we're finished. All right. So um, three more here. This can be rapid fire. If you could solve just one mystery as a scientist or historian, what would it be? You know from the last question, it would be not to look for the one mystery to solve because there are so many mysteries I would love to solve. I would love to know what was the language of the, the Harappan civilization and their undeciphered script. I would love to know what happened in that conversation between Simon Bolivar and Saint-Martin that resulted in Saint-Martin leaving forever. I would love to have in front of me the score of Bach's St. Mark Passion, which is lost. Mm. I would love to have Sibelius's last symphony, his eighth symphony, which he burned. I would love to have the missing books of Livy. I would love to have the other 10 epics of the dozen epics that included the Iliad and Odyssey. I didn't even know that. There were, there were a dozen epics of which the Iliad and the Odyssey were two parts? R roughly. Wow. I, I, didn't, I, I missed that. If you could resurrect just one person from history and put them in our world today, and you could give them the benefit of a modern education, if necessary, who would you pull back on the team? Oh, I would bring back Johann Sebastian Bach, but I wouldn't give him a modern <laughs> education. Keep him as he was. Yeah. He, he yeah. did very well with yeah. the education that he got. Okay, finally, the Jurassic Park question. If we're ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? Yes, and put it in a strong cage. Yeah. yeah. But you, it would be wonderful to have a T-Rex in a strong cage and yeah. see whether it had feathers and, and what its social system was like and, right. and, and, and how it hunted and what it did with those little Those little useless arms. arms. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, related question, do you think we should eradicate the mosquito with uh, the CRISPR mosquito. or some other technique? Should that happen soon? That requires study because if one eradicated mosquitoes, I think one would discover that there would be some unexpected 
effects on the ecosystem. I might eradicate the mosquito, the mosquito that carries, carries malaria. Yeah. That would require careful study. Listen, Jared, it's been really been a pleasure to do this. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for your time. This is very interesting. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.